Turn with me today to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And we'll begin a new chapter in the book of James. James chapter 3. And we'll look at verses 1 and 2 today. James 3, 1 and 2. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's a question you tend to hear a lot, especially as you uh, exit uh, high school, as you start to uh, graduate and uh, become an adult. Right? Everyone wants to know, what do you want to be? Uh, and perhaps, though, I think a more interesting question, because typically there's some kind of answer to that, right? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're just so uh, utterly overwhelmed by it all you say i don't know i want to be alive that's the best as i can determine right uh but perhaps a more interesting question is why do you want to be what you want to be when you grow up um i remember growing up one of my answers to that question this was when i was like in elementary school was i wanted to be a scientist i just thought they were cool i guess i don't know you know some people want to be astronauts you know firefighters real cool things i'm like give me a beaker uh, that's what I want. Uh, I don't I, think of that what you will. Uh, but why? Why? Why do you want to be those things? What's your motivation for the c- kind of career you're looking uh, for, uh, that you're striving after? And there are those who will invariably say that uh, they want to help people. Right? We we often hear that, especially in the medical field. Right? I, I just want to help people, and so that's why I want to go and be a nurse or a doctor or or what have you. Uh, Maybe you just like a certain field of study, like you're really interested by mathematics. I'm sure there are some people out there like that, right? Um, Maybe not us, Uh, but but there are people out there that like that. And they're just, I love math, and I want to do math for the rest of my life. Uh, And some of you I'm probably triggering right now, and and you're kind of like, you know, you're going to start doing the rock back and forward thing to, to cope here, but... Uh, I won't dwell on that too much longer. Maybe you really like art or English or or those uh, fields. Maybe you really like history and that's your thing. And so you kind of think uh, that's why I want to be a I want to be a professor of history because I really love love history. Um, but there are reasons for that, right? Uh, others will undoubtedly say money, right? There are people whose choice of career is motivated. By money, what makes the most money? And so they kind of look through the list. You know, maybe they go to the federal government's uh, job database and see, you know, sort by income and say, okay, that's what I want to be. I want to be uh, a doctor because they make a whole lot of money. That's what I want to be. Uh, and I mean, think about that. If we're honest, uh, if we were going to have to have surgery or have a consult for surgery, what kind of surgeon do you want? Do you want the surgeon that says, yeah, you know, I just became a surgeon because it makes a lot of money? Or do you want the surgeon that says, I have a passion uh, for helping people and I have an insight into science. I, I love science. I love the body. And, I, and that's what I, I want to help people heal. Right? Think about that. If you're going to a surgeon and they, that, that's on their business card, right? I want to make money. Or I want to help people. Which one are you going to choose? And we're honest, right? We're going to choose the one that wants to help people, right? We're not going to choose the one that wants to make money. Because first of all, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we getting the surgery because we need it or because they want to make money? So motivation is important, right? Motivation for why we do things is important, There are bad motives for seeking different professions. And sometimes we can see that in the way that people treat one another. Right. Again, we go to the medical field and sometimes we may have had experience with uh, with a doctor or a nurse whose seeming motivation has been making money and they don't make enough money. And so they're very unhappy. They don't like dealing with people. They don't want to be around people. And so we're just kind of left with this bad actor, this bad attitude. And they're kind of stuck in it because they have debt or whatever, and they need the money to pay off their debt. Uh, or, or write a number of different. We could see that in a number of different fields of study. But as much as there can be bad motives in professions uh, out there in the world, there can be bad motives for positions within the church. Uh, why does someone want to become a teacher? 
You know, if we think about that, why, why does someone become a pastor or an elder, a deacon? What's the motivation? Is there a calling? Is there a perceived gifting by the Holy Spirit? Or is it something else? And James reminds us in our passage today that authority within the church is not to be considered lightly. And indeed, I want us to see how James instructs us that to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. So let's look at our passage today, James 3, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Now many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble when he says he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle his whole body. So our passage today is just the beginning portion of a much larger portion in which James deals with the issue of the tongue, of our speech, of, of what we speak. And he opens this discussion with talking about teachers within the church. But he very quickly expands, and he, this, is a, this is a statement, this passage is for a broader application, is for everyone within the church. There are some commentators that see this discussion about teaching at the outset and presume then that James is dealing only with teachers in this section. And I'd say that as we look at the language, we'll see that it's inclusive of everybody who is in the church. Um, but, but he is concerned about our speech. And this is not the first time that we see James ref, refer to how we speak in this letter. James 1.26 says, James 1.26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless so a person a person's religion is worthless if he speaks without regard or to say it more positively right a true religion speaks truth and truly how then does this impact the person who wants to be or is a teacher within the church well this is something surely for us to consider and underscoring this and as the Basis for my summary statement, right? I said that the summary is to whom much is given, much is required. I get that from the words of Jesus. Uh, and we see one, one example of that in Luke chapter 12, 47 through 48, Luke 12, 47 through 48. And this is at the end of the parable of the wise and faithful servant, uh, the wise and faithful manager, in which the conclusion is this, Luke 12, 47. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And what's the point? Jesus tells us. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Right? So to whom much is given, much is required. And he Uses Jesus uses his parable in the earthly world, right? We know this to be the case. If we're told to do something, right? Think back to when you're a child, or for some of you, think now. If your parents said specifically, today you are going to do this amount of chores, and you, they get home that night and you haven't done those chores, do you receive a light beating or a severe beating? I know today we don't give beatings, right? We uh, just give strong words, get time out, uh, do the, you know, whatever we do. But, but if they go and they never told you anything that you were supposed to do, you had no chores, maybe it was expected of you, but they didn't tell you directly, and you get home and you, they say, why didn't you do any chores? And you say, well, I didn't know. Are you going to re receive a light beating or a severe beating, right? Again, that's, that's the point here. That's the point that Jesus is making. To, to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And I want us to see that this is true of you, believer in Christ. And this is especially true of you who are or seek to be a teacher of God's word. So let's turn to our passage today and see, firstly, strictness. Strictness in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. We know James is changing topics again because he does what he always 
typically does when he changes topics, and that is he addresses his readership. He says, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, the Greek there, just as by way of reminder, is, is allows us to see both brothers and sisters. Uh, it is, hey, you guys. But uh, it is a term referring to the church. Right? James is writing to the church, and he is instructing them. And so what does he instruct the church today in this verse? Not many of you should become teachers. And we have to stop and ask the question, of course, who's the you? Not many of you. Who's you? Well, he's speaking to the broader church here, right? He's saying to the church, my brothers, my brothers and sisters in Christ, those to whom he is writing, he's writing to the broader church, right? He's not writing just to teachers. He's not writing just to pastors. He's writing to the whole of the church. And he says, not many of you, church, should what? Become a teacher. And we have to pause and think through this because it kind of seems contradictory. Doesn't it seem contradictory for James to say to the church, not many of you should become teachers? Because consider your average corporate or office workplace. The goal for you, right, is to climb the ladder of success. And that means going up in the ranks of management, right? That, that is your goal. You want to become manager. And then you want to become manager of the managers, right? Then you want to become uh, a C-level executive, C-suite level executive, right? CEO, CEO, uh, CIO, uh, COP. No, wait, that's something different. Right, right. We want to become the leader of the leaders. That's the goal in the corporate structure. And as we so often do, we apply such business principles to the church, and we might expect that everyone should become a teacher. Right? Within the church, teachers or pastors tend to be at the top of the authority food chain. Right? Uh, mix up there somewhere sometimes as deacons especially if you have bad church polity, right? Bad church governance. Uh, you have deacons leading in a way that are that are as elders, but without the qualifications of elders, right? Uh, that's something that ought be corrected. But at any rate, uh, we apply this business principle. And so we kind of think that the, the goal of the church, your, your task as a Christian within the church, is that you come in entry level, you get some on-the-job experience, and then you work your way up and you become a teacher. And so uh, maybe maybe less business-oriented language. We, we, we would think, I think it's natural for us to think, a mature Christian should become a teacher. Right? I think that's the natural thought here. But James says the opposite. Because he says not many of you should become teachers. Not many of you should seek this position of authority within the church fellowship. And he gives reason why at the end of the verse, judgment, and we'll attend that in a little bit. But the context of this is probably, especially in the Jewish realm, rabbis, which rabbi is a word for teacher, rabbis were highly respected. They were given societal and religious positions of prominence and power. This certainly would have been the case in the early days of the church, right? And that's why we see, especially, uh, for instance, we look at the disciples or those who kind of are in Jesus's orbit. What do they call Jesus? Rabbi, right? Rabbi, teacher. It's a, it's a sign of deference and respect. So to the teacher was given respect. And today too, right? Teachers and preachers in the church are in positions of authority and prominence. We could consider, for instance, those uh, quote-unquote celebrity pastors who have kind the, the kinds of following that are normally reserved for artists, uh, celebrities, singers, songwriters, those kinds of things, right? They, they have this prominence and this aura and this authority that surrounds them. Uh, think of the, the pastors of megachurches, right? They, they have an authority and prominence around them that as soon as they write a book, what do we have to go do, right? We have to go buy that book. As soon as they release something, we have to go follow after it. And then, as is now, such prominence is enticing. 
then as is now, there were those who were seeking the position of teacher solely because of the supposed benefits it conferred to the teacher. Then as is now, there were those who were in positions of teaching who were unqualified and uncalled. So let's consider those two aspects, qualified and called. So as James says, now many of you should become teachers. Who should become teachers? Those who are qualified and those who are called. What does it take to become a teacher? Well, in the church, it doesn't seem like it takes very much, right? A warm body, someone who maybe owns a Bible and is willing to stand up in front of people and, and, and say things. In our society, right, teachers in our school systems uh, typically have to have some kind of degree or experience for the subject they are to teach. There has to be some kind of certification or licensing uh, that allows them to teach. There are qualifications. And as, as though we, we sometimes have a low bar of entry in the church to, to, the, to the office or to the authority of teaching, there should be, however, qualifications. You should have qualifications in order to teach. Does this mean you need a formal seminary degree? No, I don't, I don't think it does. It's wise. Uh, if, if you're a pastor, I think it's wise to obtain a seminary degree because you're going to be exposed to different subjects and different uh, areas uh, in which you maybe not would have otherwise been exposed to in your normal course of life or, or course of self-study. It may be prudent. But what's more important than a degree, than a seminary degree, is a willingness and an investment in, in studying, a time in studying. You don't need to go to Bible college to learn how to study the scriptures. You don't need to go to Bible college to learn how to study Greek or Hebrew, although that seems maybe scary without that structure, right? You don't have to go to seminary in order to have a system of theology that helps you to understand the scriptures. So what does it take? Again, it takes time and study. It takes access to vast resources that can aid you in that. And we in America have access to a vast treasure of resources that can help us understand the scriptures. Right? We have people who we have in, in, our, in our language, right? in English, which a lot of other languages don't have this, we have in our language faithful men who have done much study in the original languages who can help us understand what a word means or doesn't mean. That's part of what helps in my study of preparation every week is commentaries, right? That, that can help me to make sure that I'm not missing something about a portion of text or a specific word. Helps to add guardrails to my study uh, because it's easy to, to take a word and to run with it but we have to understand that word in its proper context, right? So it, we have these vast resources. We have thousands upon thousands of faithful books about the Christian life, about what it, how we could instruct ourselves in how to pray and how to pray well, study the scriptures and study them well. And be certain too that there are also many unfaithful resources, so we do have to use some critical thinking. But here's the reality. When we talk about a qualified teacher, we're not solely talk, talking or merely talking about intellectual capacity or intellectual qualifications. Because in, in contradiction to much within our world, there are also moral qualifications that a teacher should have. Moral qualifications. Uh, humility is one of the foremost qualities. In Matthew 23, 8 through 12, Matthew 23, 8 through 12, Jesus speaking here says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus speaking here, he's speaking against the scribes and the Pharisees 
And uh, in, in particular, in this passage in Matthew 23, he's speaking because uh, against their predilection, against their desire for prominence and position, they want to be seen for their religious observances. Right? They want you to know, look at how religious I am. They want people to notice them. And they want titles that mean they matter. They want titles that mean they matter. And Jesus says something somewhat harshly to our ears that we aren't to seek those things. We aren't to seek titles of prominence. Why? Because we're servants. Because we're all brothers. Right? Because we are on equal playing ground with one another. And let me just stop here and say for a moment in this. I, as pastor, am no better than you. Do you, do, you, do you understand that? Do you feel that? Because again, in our culture, that's kind of contrary to what we typically think. In our culture, especially within the church, there are those churches, there are those men who stand behind the pulpit whose purpose is to receive the prominence, the power, the position, the authority, the money, and the adulation of people. And so they create a church structure that makes sure that they are pastor and that you know it and that you bow to them because of it. But that's not so. I'm a brother in Christ. That's my relation to you. And while I believe that God has called me and he has given me a position of some authority, it is a position uh, that that its authority is derived from Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is the shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. Jesus is the teacher. And I'm an under-teacher. Right? Uh, I'm a teacher's aide. Might be a good way to think of it. He says these things uh, and that we are to humbly serve one another, right? That we... The greatest among you shall be your servant. That's what Jesus says, Matthew 23, 11. But does this mean we err if we call someone within the church teacher or pastor or instructor? Do we sin in calling our earthly father, father? That's what it seems like, right? That, on face value, that's what Jesus says. But no, not necessarily. Uh, part of what is going on here, what Jesus is saying, is that if, if we're ultimately giving authority if we're ultimately uh, attributing those titles to those persons at the exclusion of God, we're sinning. That's sin. However, if we are understanding them in the context of God's ultimate rule and authority, uh, we are in the right. So again, just to underscore this, where does authority to teach come from? Where does my authority to preach come from? It comes from God. It comes from the word of God. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from this position. It doesn't come from standing behind a pulpit. It comes from God. And so uh, we have to understand this, right? The point is this, that a teacher in Christ's church is more than someone who has knowledge. A teacher in Christ's church is also morally qualified. They exemplify the humility of Christ. And for confirmation of this need for moral qualifications, we could look to Paul's instruction about the qualities of the officers of a church. Uh, and we see that, for instance, in 1 Timothy 3. And I would encourage you to uh, keep a finger in the book of James, but go to 1 Timothy 3. Uh, we want to look at a substantial passage, so it's just helpful to go there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and starting in verse 1. 1 Timothy 3. One And listen, as I read here, or as you read along, look for what are, what, what are the qualities, what are the qualifications of a pastor or a deacon? Look, look to see what they are. Listen to this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, 
able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As I read there, for both the deacon and for the pastor or overseer, what's the emphasis? It's on character, right? Those are, those are issues of character. Paul says, look at the character of the one who would be in this position of authority or prominence within the church. It's on the kind of person that that should be, right? They are there to serve, and in order to serve well, they must have a character, a good character. It's certainly much more on what the person can do. And indeed, uh, in the in that discussion of overseer, right, there's there's one qualification that is in character. That, that's able to teach. That's because the position of overseer is a teaching position. So as we think of our teachers, as we think of those who are above us uh, uh, in the sense of in places of authority or places of office within the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to consider the qualifications of those persons. We have to consider the qualifications of the teachers of our congregation, whether they are teaching uh, from a position as I am or whether they're teaching infants. Do we understand that? Do we, do we see that? Do we realize that? Or we have to consider the character needed to be in such a position. And let me just say that that has been especially made evident in more recent years uh, in that those who are without the character put into places of authority within the church, that such persons are bound to fall, and such persons cause great harm when they do. Right As we hear stories of abusive pastors, abusive teachers, and whatever that abuse may be, they abuse their position, they abuse their charges, and make void their confession of faith. God have mercy on us, because we have failed to consider the qualifications of the teacher. And I pray, uh, I pray that you would pray for me, brothers and sisters in Christ. Outside of the grace of God, I am but a breath from such evils that would bring disrepute upon the name of Christ. Do you understand that? I certainly feel it. But as we consider the moral qualifications of the teacher, we must also understand that they are called. So they're qualified and they're called. And what do I mean by called? Because he says not many of you should become teachers, but if you're gifted by the Holy Spirit to teach, you should teach. You're called to it. If you're called by him and recognized by the church, it's incumbent upon you to fulfill that calling. 1 Corinthians 12.8 says, 1 Corinthians 12.8, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. The Spirit of God gives wisdom and knowledge, especially to some for the purposes of instructing the church. And what does Paul say there in 1 Corinthians 12 is the purpose of spiritual gifts for the common good, for edification of the saints. 
Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, again confirms that teachers are called. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, and notice the language here. And he gave. God gave, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. To what end? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what I want us to see of these two passages, right, Paul points out that God both gives spiritual gifts for the edification of the church and he gives teachers to the church in order to instruct us for the purpose of equipping us and maturing us in Christ. God calls and the church recognizes that call. And that's an important aspect of it too. What I mean by that is the church recognizing the call of one who is called to teach, right? So they... So someone comes up and says, I feel called to preach. I feel called to teach. Well, the question is, does the church agree? Does the church see in that person evidences of God's grace to that end? It is good for the church to come alongside and confirm such calling. And I want to assure it's not final that they do, uh, but it is concerning if they do not. So if a man comes up and says, I feel called to preach. Well, brother, that's great news. Let's think about this. Do you know your Bible? Do you know your Bible? How are you living? What kind of character do you have? There are men who feel called to preach, but whose character voids, voids that. They have no qualification to it. So we have to, as the church, have to recognize that call. And I also want to point out here, right, there is a reality, too, that there are some churches who are so spiritually dead that they have no ability to recognize the Spirit of God in another. And so uh, that's a that's a warning there, too, right? They can't recognize teachers or preachers because uh, they don't recognize spiritual things. And that's a, that's a statement, of, a warning about their health. And um, we need to get such persons out of that, right? Get them to good and healthy and vital living churches. And understand, too, that nothing about God's calling or equipping, again, voids what God says about the teacher. Both of these have to go together. Qualified and called. Both and. Not either or. So if being a teacher is a good thing, and it is, why should not many of you become teachers? It is a good thing to be a teacher. God gives teachers to the church. Because, James continues, look back at James 3.1. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness or will be subject to greater condemnation. What is the point? If it's, if it's true, right, especially if it's true that if in James' day there were those who were seeking the position of teacher in the church because they thought it came with some prestige, James here warns his readers, and by extension us today, that they ought be concerned, that we ought be concerned about the greater judgment that they will experience. It is no light thing to become a teacher. Because again, remember the point of Jesus' parable. Luke 12, 48, the second half of the verse. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Teachers can expect that on the day of judgment, they will give a greater account of their words and life than others will they will be subject to a stricter scrutiny. Again, consider the words of Jesus about, about the words we speak in Matthew 12, 36-37. Matthew 12, 36-37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. 
And let me just say, right, statistically speaking, a teacher is more likely to speak carelessly because of the abundance of their words. I know I have. For reference here, my typical sermon manuscript is about 4,000 words, and that's give or take. And I often don't stick to the manuscript, so there you go. The amount of words I speak, I'll assign that to one of the kids. This week, go back, listen to the sermon on the podcast, and count how many words I spoke. Uh, Don't really do that. That sounds terrible. But, But right, by God's grace, and it is only by God's grace, I don't speak more carelessly than I do. And may God, again, guard the door of my lips to keep me from such things. And as we talk about stricter judgment here, though, what does James mean? What does he mean that they will be subject to, right? That we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. What does that mean? Are we talking about being thrown into hell? Are we talking about that we're going to spend, teachers are going to spend longer time in purgatory? The scripture says that everyone will give an account, right? In in Matthew 12, that's what it says. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What's likely in view here is some loss of rewards, right? for, For the Christian, if you are saved by the blood of Christ, you are saved. And there is nothing that will cause you to lose that. You can't lose it. If God has elected you, if he has saved you, You're saved. That's it. But there is reward and there are degrees of reward. There is a a sense in which there will be those who will have a slightly less glorious experience of heaven. That's what we're to understand, right? Some Paul says will escape best through fire. First Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest. For the day, and that's a capital D, day, that's the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So better than James implies, is it to not be a teacher, not be subject to that greater strictness, not be subject to that greater condemnation. So, church, you should not strive for the position of teacher or pastors because you think it will come with some prominence or prestige. You will find, if not here, then certainly on the day of judgment, that such prominence comes with greater responsibility, greater care for souls, a greater judgment for failing to live up to God's word. And I can tell you that my conscience is often burdened because as much as I sin, I know it's sin. And I have no excuse for it. Right? As much as I, as I sin, I know the things that I do are sinful. And I know I'm called to live different. And I won't say ignorance is bliss because it's not. But we who have the authority and the position of teaching have a greater judgment. Our words will be judged more. And as you consider this passage, you yourself should consider your teachers and preachers. Consider those who are in positions of influence and authority. Are they called by God? Are they equipped by the Holy Spirit? Do they have sufficient character? Right? In other words, are they morally and intellectually fit for the role? Teachers wield authority, which can be for the good of the church or it can be for its harm. It behooves us to protect the church from such men as are unfit for the role. And we must remember that false teachers abound. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will bring who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Right? There are false teachers. There are those whose motivation, as it says in, in Peter here, right? Their motivation is sensuality. Their motivation is greed. They're there for themselves. The servant, the one who is to be the servant, is there to be Lord and Master when there is one Lord and Master. So you need to take greater care and concern with whom you put forward as teacher or pastor because some people have no business and we as the church need to refuse to listen to those who have no business being teacher and pastor. And for those of you who still desire to teach, if you feel that God has called you to teach or to preach, if you feel that he has equipped you to that end, if you desire to be a teacher, not because of some prominence or prestige, money or other perks, be obedient to your calling. What James is not saying here, right, is none of you should be teachers. What he is saying is not many of you should be teachers. There are some of you who will be teachers. God has called you to it. He has equipped you for it. He is working to that end, and you need to be obedient to your calling. And if you real, really do feel that way, if you feel that God is leading you in that direction, come talk with me. Let's discuss it. Let's, let's explore that possibility together. Let's figure it out. Let's work through it. Because for you not to fulfill your calling, for you not to use your spiritual gifting, is disobedience. But also heed James' warning here. There will be greater strictness, greater judgment. So tremble. Tremble at the prospect of God using your words against you. And strive for the kind of character that will make you a fit teacher. Strive for the fruit of the Spirit to be made evident in your life. Strive to keep from stumbling. And that's what I want us to see secondly in verse 2, stumbling. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James continues and says, right, we stumble in many ways. And we have to stop here and again ask the question of pronoun. Who is the we? I'm not talking about the uh, Nintendo video game system from some years back. That was a popular hit, right? Talking about we, W-E. Who, who, who are we here? Is the we James and the other teachers, right? Again, some commentators suggest that. Or is the we every Christian? And again, I would say that the issue here, who James is addressing, is not just teachers. He's addressing the whole church. Right, Because even at the outset, he says, not many of you. Again, who's the you? The whole church. And here we have we. For we, church, we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble in many ways. What is the word stumble? This is about failure in keeping the law. James 2.10. James 2.10. Same word. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails, that is stumbles, in one point has become guilty of it all. And so it is, right? That, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about sin. When we're talking about stumbling, we're talking about sin. We're not talking about tripping. We're talking about sin. We all stumble in many ways. And this many ways is probably not about quantity, but kind, right? We all stumble in various kinds, just like the various trials that we have in life. And he goes on and says, and if we don't fail in what we say, if we don't speak those careless words Jesus spoke about, or if we don't fail to show love in our speech always, then we're a perfect man. We're wholly complete. We're, we're there. We, we are mature. The man who is able to hold his tongue is the man who is holy gods. Not only that, but right, we, we get this understanding He's also able to bridle his whole body, or he's able to control his whole body. He's able to discipline himself. And as we continue to walk through the passage, we'll see that James uses uh, various uh, similes, metaphors, images to underscore this point. The tongue is powerful. 
if we could control our tongues, the rest of the body is easy to control. If we can control our tongues, if we can discipline our tongues, then disciplining our body is very easy. And I think if we're honest, we find that we can neither discipline our body nor discipline our tongues. How, how often do we say the thing we wish we didn't say? Uh, there was some time ago, uh, I gave a, a talk to a bunch of uh, kids uh, in a kind of afternoon VBS type setting. And it was about words. And I took a banana and I opened the banana. I said, our speech is a lot like opening a banana. Once you open it, you can never close it again. Right? As soon as it's opened, that's it. You either have to use the banana or get rid of it. Because that's it. You, you can't close. You could try and glue it. You could try and staple it. It's not going to work. It's not going to close, right? So are our words. Once they're out there, they're out there. As silly and as goofy as that is, right? The, the point is there. The point is there. We have to bridle. We have to discipline our tongue. We have to discipline. Because a matter of Christ-likeness for us is what we say. It's how we say it. Right? It is the tongue which guides the course of the body, either to Christ-likeness or sinfulness. The glories of heaven or the fires of hell. The call for you, teachers and preachers, is a controlled tongue and life. And the call for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, teacher or not, the call for you is a controlled tongue and life. James addresses here the community of believers because there seems to be some striving to be a teacher, not because they're called, not because they're qualified, but because they want something of the position. They want the prestige of being a teacher. They want some accolade. They want some attention. They want some praise. But James warns here that not many within the church should be teachers because with such authority comes a greater scrutiny, a greater judgment, a greater condemnation. To whom much is given... Much is required. The teacher is to strive to be the perfect man, able to bridle his whole body, including his tongue. And so too is that true for every Christian. So brothers and sisters in Christ, you who are bought by the blood of Christ, don't unduly strive for places of authority within the church. Christ will require more of you. Right? If you want to be a position in the church, understand that comes with greater scrutiny by God himself, by the Holy God. You will be subject to judgment to a greater degree because you must know more. And that's the thing, as a teacher, you don't have an excuse and you can't say, I didn't know. It's your job to know. So you better study or you better learn and you better hold to it. Being a teacher is not about prominence. It's not about priority. It's not about position. It's about humbly serving God's people. And so if you have been called by God to proclaim the message of Christ, to teach about the ways of Christ, then do so. Train yourself in the scripture. Strive for conformity to Christ. Be like him, right? Seek to be obedient in all the things that God calls you to do, instructs you to do. And the good news is, though, we may stumble in many ways, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Though we may speak carelessly, we can go to God and we can ask for his forgiveness. And because Christ has borne the punishment for our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Further, brothers and sisters, pray. Pray for control of your own tongue. Pray that Psalm of David in Psalm 141, verse 3. Psalm 141, verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And I would beseech you to pray that for me. I speak much, and my calling is a gift and grace of God, and I want to honor Christ in all that I do, including the words that I use, but I need God's strength. I need His grace to do that. Church, consider these things. And for those of you who don't believe in Jesus, those of you who don't accept the teachings of the Scripture, realize that there is a far worse judgment for you uh, to come. You will not be saved as though through fire. 
Instead, you will suffer the full fiery wrath of the God of all creation. You will find out that God is a consuming fire. And he doesn't hesitate to consume those wicked sinners who fail to repent. You will be brought to account for all the evils that you have thought, spoken, and done. You will suffer under the righteous hand of a holy God. So repent. Seek the forgiveness of your sins that is offered to you in Christ Jesus alone. Turn from your sins, the wrong that you do, and turn to God. Seek His mercy. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So believe in God's character. Believe in the work of Christ Jesus. Trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Let all your words glorify God. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, as we consider your word this morning, as we consider what it is you have spoken, Father, we must consider what we have spoken. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us for all of the evil that has passed through our lips, whether it was unbidden, intentional, or otherwise. Father, we pray that you would impress upon us the truth of your word. And Lord God, that you would help us to bridle our tongues that you would help us to, to honor you with our lips always. Father, we pray that you would rise up, uh, raise up for, uh, for yourself faithful teachers and preachers from your people. God, that you would call and equip them. Father, that they would be qualified, not just in what they know, but in what they do, and to be a teacher of your word. Father, as we pray this, we pray this because we know it is for our good that we have faithful, faithful preachers and teachers, faithful unto your word, faithful unto obedience to your word. We need that, Father, for our own sake, for our soul's sake, for the sake of the lost and dying community around us. God, I pray that be so for me. Father, create in me a heart of faithfulness to speak faithfully and to live faithfully. O Lord, give grace. And Father, for those who don't know you, those who don't trust in Christ, God, have mercy upon them. Lord, let them see the truth of their sins, the truth of you, that they would believe and repent, and seek Christ. Do that work which you alone can do, O Lord God, we pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.